wanted people to think about war in terms of their family, what they see on their television and film screens, what they hear from other cultures. Because that broadens the viewfinder through which you look. I want people to go back into their own families and say, what was that story my grandfather told me? What was that story my great-grandmother told me? I'm Michael Tamlin, and this is Kobo in Conversation. My guest is the actor, director, and playwright, R.H. Thompson. As much as I'd love to talk about his many stage and screen credits, Robert's joining us because he recently published a book called By the Ghost Light, Wars, Memory, and Families. Part memoir, part travelogue, part history. It's a thoughtful and impassioned consideration of war and the stories we tell one another about it. Robert, welcome to Kobo. Thanks, Michael. Nice to be here. There are so many ways to frame this book. Your family history, the history of two world wars, the traditions and politics of how and why we remember those who die, um, and your own work that threads through this book. But I'd like to start with the most intimate of those framings, Letters Home. Many of your family went off to fight in the First World War, and they didn't just jump on a train or a ship and disappear. They immediately started writing letters home. When did you first discover those letters? The letters were trailed through my childhood with, you know, Robert, you should be reading your great uncle's letters. So um, they had been compiled, typed up and compiled into separate books by the little sister of all these boys. And then she carbon copied them and we were all supposed to read them. So, you know, I would read them at 14 and 15 and pretty well go. These are pretty boring. Uh, they don't really talk about war. Where's the action? And it's all kind of dusty history anyway. Later, when I grew up a little, uh, I would read them again, a little more appreciative. But when I went to actually write a play about them, I started to read them in the context of what the regiment was doing at the moment that they wrote that those words. And when I started adding that context, said, wait a minute, they're talking about, you know, whatever, George is talking about socks and the lovely Hawthorne bush and gee, it's November, uh, November 1917. Then I read the regimental war diary for what they were doing on that day. And they were in the middle of the Battle of Passchendaele. And at that point, the letters opened up in terms of what, like an iceberg, you know, the words they put down on the page were the tip of the iceberg but what's beneath the surface? And I began to see what was beneath the surface. And just to provide a bit of context, how many of your, your great uncles took part in the war? I was brought up thinking only about my uh, Ontario family, which were the Stratfords and the Thompsons, and five, uh, four brothers from one family, you know, two were killed there, two didn't make it uh, and died afterwards in the sanitariums. But then on my mother's side of the family, there were three great uncles. So you add them all up, four plus three equals seven. And in terms of what they were writing back and forth, you you mentioned that as a child, it was, uh, it was kind of hard to get excited about them. What was, what was being shared back? What, what did they feel was important to send back home to the people who were waiting for them? 
it would be the same if you were fighting in Afghanistan, um, you know, with Canadian forces in Afghanistan and you were uh, phoning your mother. What would you tell your mother from Afghanistan? You get pretty careful what you say um, and pretty careful what you admit or don't admit to yourself. And I guess the process of reading the latter is because I'm also an actor. So I'm also used to looking at text, trying to fathom the kind of person who wrote this text or this dialogue, you know, that's the way you, you know, when you do acting, when you look at dialogue in a play or a film. So similarly, I'm looking at the way they wrote, what they wrote about what subjects they came to, when the, you thought they might be emotional and when they were obviously guarding something and try to get a, a kind of a GPS on, on who they were under there. And, the, and there were very different, they're very different people. And you can start to read that in their letters. Um, Jack is the most matter of fact. His letters are very matter of fact and straight to the point. Uh, Joe is uh, full of elan and, you know, soaring phrases and the romantic fighter. And George, George, I, I, I think, was like me. I thought, well, what would I write home if I was in the middle of that war or if I was in Kabul and Afghanistan? Uh, what would I write home? That's what I would write home. So it's connecting with them that way, as well as seeing the context um, understanding the context in which they wrote the letters. Um, and then gradually getting to know the military and social history to mm -hmm. add even more perspective on why they would write that at that moment. Your great aunt maiden is in a sense at the heart of by the ghost light. Can you tell us about the task that she undertook in compiling and collecting. She was a teenager during that war and her older brothers were all off. Five of them were off. I don't know if you can imagine if you had five brothers who were away fighting or if I had five brothers, that's a substantial thing for it to happen in any family. She was at school. Then the casualty lists would start to be printed in the papers. So First war, the first year of the war, the second year of the war, the third year of the war, the fourth year of the war. And then the death notices would start to come back and she would hear of friends who'd had brothers killed or fathers killed. And because she lost so many brothers, I, I wonder where she put her passion. Where did she put her, I don't know if it was rage, I don't know if it was passion, I don't know if it was grief. But I do know that as an older woman, she decided to take, there were 760, I think, letters handwritten. She decided to type them all out. And this is her way of passing down to the family saying, these lives are important. You know, the pencil letters may get lost. And here are copies of it. So in fact, she's a, every generation is a story keeper, right? I don't, I don't know, Michael, mm -hmm. if you're the story keeper in, in your family. But, and she became the story keeper of this, which makes you think, it makes you think, think a lot about story because the book is a lot about story. I only journey into, into the stories of my family because I want to talk about creating a story who remembers the story. How are they remembered? To what agendas are they remembered? And why are stories so intrinsically powerful in our memory and our imagination? And they are. 
you tell me, if someone tells me a fact, you know, a list of facts, very, very interesting, but I probably will soon forget it. You embed those facts in a story, and I will probably remember the facts. There's something about the structure of story that goes deep in us when we hear things, whether you're hearing about your family or whether you're hearing about the periodic table or whatever. But this kind of structure called story that seems to be genetic, seems to be, um, because I, I come from the storytelling arts, and there's no other form out there like story. I don't think someone leapt up from the cave and 45,000 years ago and said, I've just dreamt up something and I'm calling it story. No, it was, it became, they become roadmaps that are laid down the various stories that you can tell that actually lay out the map for those listening of where the road may be going ahead and how you navigate the mysterious thing called life that none of us really understand. And so storytelling, you know, I will say to young actors when I'm teaching actors, incompetently teaching actors, if you're an actor, you're a storyteller, and your art goes from the sacred to the profane. There are traditions in which storytelling is entirely sacred and belongs to the religions and all the metaphysical part of understanding life. Then there's the entertainment storytellers that have nothing to do with that. They're all about, you know, keeping you watching and taking your money. And somewhere in, on that spectrum between sacred and profane lie all storytellers. Every storyteller has to entertain you. So even the religious stories are, have entertaining chorus to them because that keeps us listening. But they are embedded kind of value maps of how to move ahead. And I believe there's only five of them. There are only five. It was a comedian, um, Frank Schuster. He was an old comedian and uh, CBC TV Canadian and all the rest of it. And I was a young actor and I passed him in the hall mm -hmm. of CBC one day. He said, oh, hi, Robert, how are you doing that? You know, I'm a young actor going, oh my God, there's, that's, that's, that's a famous guy. I mean, we started talking and he said to me, Robert, do you understand? I think it's only, see, I can't actually remember. This is, okay, this is to the heart of storytelling. I can't remember if he said there's only seven or 10 jokes in the world. <laughs> But really, it doesn't matter. He said to me, there are only a certain number of jokes in the world. Let's say 10. There's only 10 jokes in the world, Robert. And every joke is a version or a combination of those 10 jokes. And when I heard that, I thought, this is outrageous. I can say there's only 10 jokes. There's a billion jokes. As you think about it, and as you work through the decades, I will tell you, I believe there's only five stories. They're not negotiable. They are the kind of five pillars of <clears throat> our deep curiosity and worries. And they're imperatives, uh, which is you have no choice but to listen. And they go all the way from the very easy stories, the killer be killed, will the bear eat me, or will I shoot the bear, the survival stories, all the way down to the top stories, which are the creation stories. And every, uh, creation stories are usually written by uh, by religious and metaphysical entities. Mm -hmm. And there's only five of them. And all stories in the world, whether it's a law and order or Shakespeare or whatever, is one of those five or a combination of those five. And there's only five because they're imperatives. They're genetic imperatives. You do not have a choice. You listen. Because you need to survive. And that's, that's this kind of voltage running underneath the so-called innocent story, innocent narrative. Hey, let me tell you a story. 
And in this book, as we move from kind of the, the intimate exchange of information from uh, of letters from one family member to another, we move into the kinds of stories that countries tell about themselves and um, and the narratives that grow up around the conflicts that they fight. And that also then takes you from your own family's letters into government archives and uh, conversations with diplomats and historians around the world. In 2018, we commemorated the 100th anniversary at the end of the First World War. And in the years leading up to that day, you led a mission, a project called The World Remembers to remember every combatant who died in the First World War. Can you tell me how that idea first germinated? I'm not quite sure. Um, as I say, I wrote in a play, a play called The Lost Boys, based on the 700 letters that Maiden kept from the members of, of my Ontario family, the Stratfords. And I keep citing this incident. I, I can't, in the retelling of the stories, you begin to doubt whether you're actually telling the truth <laughs> or you're just retelling a story that you told before that seemed to work. <laughs> However, I will tell it. I played the play. It was a one-man show. I played it in uh, Winnipeg and Toronto and Ottawa. So I did maybe 100 performances. Uh, it was whatever it is. Some people liked it. Some people didn't care for it. People came to my dressing room and, you know, high, nice show or interesting show or whatever they say, right? Actors know how to negotiate that uh, because people want to say hello, hello, and maybe they didn't actually like the show, but they want to say hi anyway. There's a lot of code in there. But what struck me through all these performances was almost everyone, every visitor to my dressing room, launched unasked into their family's war stories. And at first I thought, well, this is a coincidence. You know, I'm tired. I'm at a show. I'm sitting here going puff, puff, puff. But they all launch into these stories. And after the months, I'm thinking something else is going on here, that the stories poured out, tumbled out. And many of the story, like Lubagoy's story, were of her grandfather, were stunning. And I thought, I have just written about the First World War, my family, and 700 letters, and yes, I have a lot of stories in my family, but I thought, no, all these people have come to my dressing room, they all have compelling stories about a war, and many about the First World War. And therefore, there's a legion of compelling stories buried in families and buried in minds. Therefore, to remember history uh, through, the, through the treaty dates or through the battle dates or through the technology or through the military, yes, fine, you can go remember history that way if you want. What about remembering it through the people? And we don't remember it through the people. We always remember history through the power structures and the treaties and the this. And I know it's called social history, but again, Nobody remembers the names. And I thought, has anybody named the Canadians killed in World War? No. Yeah, they're sitting in a book. They're sitting in a book and up in Ottawa, but never named them out loud. And yet we have remembrance ceremonies every November the 11th. Nobody names them. And I began to see the contradiction. I said, wait a minute, you're having a remembrance ceremony about the First World War and Second World War, Korea War, but nobody names them. And started to hit me over the head. So my producing partner, uh, Martin Conboy and I, we did, 
We put 68,000 names on the Canadian National War Memorial in Ottawa. We timed them so people could find the exact moment that their grandfather's name would appear. You know, you, you go to the website, you type in the name and said, oh, yes, your grandfather's name going to name going to go to appear November the 8th at 3.02 a.m. And the family would come at 3 a.m. in the morning with their two kids. And at 3.02 a.m., their grandfather's name would appear on the National War Memorial. And that meant a lot to them. So I began to see that naming them, not just adding them to how do you talk about history, but naming them actually spoke to the families who had lost them. And you go, okay, the next logical step is we're naming the Canadians. Why don't we name everybody? Which is ludicrous. I mean, how can you do that? It's like more than 30 countries and more than 9 million names. So how do you name those? But if you don't, you perpetuate an old version of remembrance was we were great, we won, we sacrificed, we were brave. That's great. That's honorable. But in the modern world, that's not enough. And the example was set to me by the French, uh, the French and the Germans. I think it was in the 80s, Cole uh, Mitron at a quite infamous or famous now remembrance ceremony of Verdun in France. Um, a, the two politicians, head of Germany, head of France, did not speak. So there were no political words at this, no politically different words. B, the flag they laid over the single coffin was half German, half French. And C, the leaders of France and Germany held hands. And it became a symbol when they said, you, if you remember in isolation, you continually reinforce division in the imagination. They said, we won't do that anymore. So I took a cue from that and I said, okay, let's name everyone. Let's find them. I mean, it's an impossible task. I don't know how you do it. And we're sort of halfway through and it's taken 10 years. But Canadians will come up to me uh, a Slovak Canadian came up to me, a German Canadian came up to me and said, you know, Robert, that's the first time I felt included on November the 11th. I said, well, what do you mean? Well, my great-grandfather was Slovak and the Slovak was name was there in your project. And the German Canadian would say, you know, I felt excluded. I'm, I'm born in Canada, but my family were German. So I felt excluded in this country every November the 11th. But your project is the first one that says, no, no, you're included because the German name's there, the Australian name's there, the Italian name's there, the Chinese name is there, the Nigerian name is there, the French name, the Canadian name, the Australian, all the rest of it. So it's trying to say about memory and telling the story of the war through memory. We have to recreate it in a new way because we're a different country. We're a different world and we're a different country. Therefore, we should name them. A lot of this book follows you as you negotiate with officials and go from place to place to access archives to find those names. When you when you first began to undertake this, when did it first become clear that this was not going to be an easy task? A little bird inside my head told me when I started in 2011. I, I said, okay, there's going to be three intractable knots that have to be done. Money, politics, and data. And they remain the ultimate challenges. Mm -hmm. Politics is a knot. 
whether you're talking about whether you're talking about Armenia and Turkey, whether you're talking about Romania, Romania and and Hungary, it becomes very political as to whose whose dead soldiers are whose, whose names do you include? Well, if you're including them, you're insulting me, and you get into very difficult political waters. Money, no government's going to give you all the money. No, so you got to go find it from wonderful individuals, and the data. You think, well, everybody's got the lists. Uh, that's true. And again, don't let's let, lose the context. We're talking about history. And we're talk, talking about telling stories about history. So Canada wants to tell the story of its wars. And we were victorious. And we will name ours. And we will put them in a book of honor. And we will put them in the Beast Tower. Okay. But if you lost the war, you do that. You create a book of honor of all your soldiers who were killed while you were losing the war? That how you tell the stories of war? Well, the answer is no. So many countries have never put together their list of those who were died for them, which becomes another kind of outrage theme through the book. You say, why, why do we never remember soldiers? We haven't done it for thousands of years. Why are they so expendable? Why do we love the men and women and the Canadian forces who will go over and take on these tasks for us? We love them when they're doing that. We call them heroes. And when they come home, we basically forget them. We don't pay them well. We don't deal well with their PTSD. We basically forget them. What is that about us? So the book asks that question as well. As we look at the story of memory, not only the memory of my family, but the memory of the nation and the memory of the world. So in a way, the world remembers is trying to create the first collective memory of a war. The most complicated version of that remembering, not remembering the data and lack thereof, political will or lack thereof, was your engagement with Russia. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that. Again, this is how we tell our stories about war. You know, who won World War II? Like, well, who won World War II? Oh, the Americans or the British? Yeah. Really, the Russians. It was the Russians and the Americans who won World War II. We don't tell that story a lot, but they did. Russians and the Americans won World War II. War I. Was Russia part of World War I? Oh, yeah, they were fighting over there. The main story of World War I is France and Belgium, you know, the the trenches of Ypres and the first, all those usual stories. Well, what about in the East? What about in the East in Romania, Bulgaria, Russia? Russia lost more soldiers in World War I than any other country. We remember, remember that? No, because it doesn't fit the kind of stories that we like to tell about war. Well, it's part of the story. And it was the French uh, head of the Mission de Centenaire who said, Robert, you don't have a project without the Russians. So in the conversation with the Russians through, uh, because Russian history is immense. All you have to do is read War and Peace and realize why the book comes in at more than a thousand pages. This is immense history. But they also had a revolution. And then they had totalitarianism. They had 70 70 years of, of communist totalitarianism. And the Russian military just said, no, no, these records were lost. You'll never find them. No one uh, in, a patriotic, in a patriotic fervor after the war. No one wanted to put together the lists of the heroic dead because of a revolution. Anyway, 
so they basically said, Robert, there's not much you can do here. So I went to Moscow and I was talking to the military archives people. I'm talking with foreign affairs. I'm talking with the history department at Lomonosov University. And then they took me to me and uh, a translator and a person from the embassy to a kind of decrepit uh, adjunct to an archive on the outskirts of Moscow. And it was it was a decrepit place like, wow, needs to clean, needs to face lift and needs a furnace. And these guys in blue overalls, um, all in Russian, uh, very suspicious, like, uh, who are you? You're Westerners. What are you asking about this for? And then they turned out to be archivists. And I thought they were the janitors. They were the archivists. And when they understood not the politics of what I was trying to do, but the personal thing of what I was trying to do, is to say that every dead Russian young man should be named, as long as every dead Frenchman, every dead German, every dead Canadian, every dead American. He went and pulled out of the back these books, handwritten books. He said, I have a thousand of these. And my jaw was on the floor. I never heard about these books. I said, do you have a copy? No. Do you have microfilm? No. Are they scanned? No. So I was looking at the only written copy he said maybe there were a million names in the books. And then he said, yeah, in, in 19, 1918, the Latvian soldiers during the, the war between the Reds and the Whites, they were billeted here and they were cold and they were burning books in the stove over there to keep warm. So it's like walking into a Dostoevsky novel, but they're there. I know, you know the historians peg a number. It could be 1.8 million, 2 million Russians. No one ever has known. These books are there with maybe a million names. So it's possible. But politics comes into it. The moment that Russia went into Crimea, I could no longer speak to them because foreign affairs said, Robert, they'll use you. It becomes political. So when I said it's data, money, so it became a a lethal mixture of data and politics. Mm -hmm. It can be solved at that point, but it waits, it waits to be solved. I was also struck by kind of the contrasting experience of Belgium in deciding who and how to remember. Can you can you talk a bit about their approach? The Belgians uh, had have had so many wars fought on their land, um, and then all the empires arrived in 1914, 1918, and decided to fight a lot on their land. <laughs> kill a lot of their people and destroy a lot of their farms. So they have a very different feeling about war. They don't think it's a good idea. Um, and in fact, Ypres is, uh, which is Ypres, which is the French version, uh, and in Flemish it's Ypres, is one of the circle of the city, city of pieces in the world, you know, Hiroshima, um, a number of cities, Stalingrad, that were destroyed in wars, have, have an association called the Cities of Peace. And they too say no. In their museum, again, I encountered the idea to remember in isolation reinforces division. Therefore, to remember yours, you know, you know, uh, the employees of my bank who died, or the members of my police force who died, or my army who died, and not remember the others create, creates division. So they said we will remember everyone killed on our soil. We will name them. And I don't care whether you were civilian, I don't care whether you were German or French or British or Australian or Canadian or from the Punjab, 
if you died in our land, we will remember you. And it's quite a statement. Um, and for me, that has real power to it. In the preface of the book, you write about cleaning up, the cleaning up that happens after a war. What do you mean by that expression? Wars are really messy. <laughs> They're really dirty. Um, they spend a lot of money. They take a lot of money away from a lot of other things that cultures and societies like to do. And the question is, how do you deal? How do you deal? The question is, how do you deal with the aftermath of the war? There is a historical point of view that says so many millions were killed in World War One that politically afterwards people went, you know, if the population start to understand how many were killed for almost nothing, there could be social unrest. And this is a time of revolution. You know, the Bolsheviks are uprising. There's a communist government in Budapest for a while. I mean, it's all fermenting. So in the memorializing of the war, it was important to package it in such a way, and I'm sorry about the word package, you could say honor it in such a way, or package it in such a way that makes it acceptable. It's acceptable to kill 68,000 Canadians, basically for nothing, because we weren't fighting for democracy, we weren't fighting for freedom. No, we weren't there. The only freedom at stake was Belgium. There was nobody else's freedom at the stake. There was no democracy at stake because they were all monarchies. So 68,000 Canadians were killed for what? So you dress it up. You make it for honor. You, make it, you add a lot of Christian images. So the, the remembrance has been part of the dressing up, that this was acceptable to do what we did. It was acceptable to kill 68,000 Canadians and acceptable to kill 860. 70,000 Brits, to kill 1.4 million Frenchmen, it's acceptable. Well, if you ask yourself, no, it isn't acceptable, then somehow the cultures and the town halls and the city halls and the national governments have to deal with that. So it, it creates a narrative, very honorable narrative, that it was worth it. It was for honor, it was for a sacrifice, it was for democracy, and it was for freedom. We have to be careful, we're in politics here, World War II was acceptable in a way because it was an entirely toxic regime that had to be defeated, and it was for democracy, not World War I. But to conflate those two wars and say, well, they're both for democracy and freedom is not the truth of the matter. So the memorializing is then to put it to bed, to put the carnage to bed, to make people feel that it was acceptable for this to happen. The problem with the First World War for the first time, so many of the soldiers were literate. The ordinary soldiers were literate, as opposed to other wars when most ordinary soldiers couldn't read or write. The ordinary soldiers afterwards, the veterans, began writing, and they wrote from very disturbing stuff. So there were stories being told of the First World War from the men who had been there that didn't kind of fit the tidied-up narrative. So... Now, those were the political strains that were going on to how do you contain that. To give you an example of the evolution of, there you have the Viet America and Vietnam. And it's a very contentious war. At the time, it was being fought. And the American Vietnam Memorial has all the names of the Americans killed in Vietnam on that stone for the first time. 
So that was a, an evolution of memorializing. What the Vietnam Memorial in the U.S. doesn't have is the names of the one million North Vietnamese and South Vietnamese army guys who were killed. But so memorializing is evolving, and I hope the world remembers is one step on that evolution. Michael, it's an endless topic. We could be here for a week. Oh, I know. We I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to give you huge, long answers to it. but We are. We're perfectly comfortable with huge, lofty answers. But to pull, then to pull this back to your family, how do you connect a process like that cleaning up of narrative that operates at the level of national myth back to the personal stories you had of individual family members does that how does that cleaning up and uh, you know again it, it's it's uncomfortable to use the word packaging um but how does that operate when you're talking about the tragedy of an individual family who's lost so many i don't know um you look for tiny signs. You know, we talked about reading the letters and trying to understand the syntax and trying to look for the space between the words in which a more spontaneous thought might be there. But I remember one incident with my, with Maiden, right? The younger sister who wrote all the letters. And, you know, I would help her when she was elderly and, you know, we'd go driving and take her shopping or whatever. And we were driving in her car one day here in Toronto and we drove by a church, uh, Grace Church on the Hill. And as we drove by it, she just spontaneously said, uh, she said, uh, I've never stepped in that church since 1917. I thought, oh, that's a strange thing for an older woman, very nice woman to say. No, she said, I've never stepped in that church since 1917. I said, why? She said, that's because that's where my brothers were blessed before they went to war. And I took that as a door her talking about my brothers were blessed and look what happened to them. They went to war and they were lost. I do not return there. Either it was because the emotionality of going inside would be too strong for her or because she had thoughts like I have. What was the point? How dare you have priests on both sides blessing both armies? What's that about? If not storytelling. So you look for cracks and fissures like that uh, to try to understand uh, one of the uncle's art. Uh, he was the first over there. He was the youngest of the five Stratford boys. Whenever he was went over in 1914, he was at RMC. He was seconded to uh, the British Regiment, the Bedford. So he was basically in the trenches by November 1914, which is the Canadians didn't really get there till later. And he spent uh, October, November, December in the trenches. He wrote home, he said, this is the suicide list. He said, being in the trench, being sent to the trenches is a suicide list. He was then wounded in the trenches, blah, blah, blah. Then he did everything he could not, not to return to the trenches. So he went and fought in Egypt. He tried to join the Royal Flying Corps, but his heart couldn't take it. So he then joined the, uh, he went and fought in Egypt and then went and fought in Africa. But that one sentence saying, you know, the, the, the list of those being sent to the front is a suicide list. Okay, there's a fissure. You can travel down that. And he was the one who was at Christmas in 1914, where he describes coming out of the trenches 
and the Germans coming out and being very hesitant and not trusting each other, you know, saying, well, you come first and I will come. Uh, he was in that. So he was a big questioner of war. I know that. But then, as soon as 1939 came up, he lied about his stage and he joined the army again. So there's a lot of very complex history in there, and I appreciate that. I believe he was an iconoclast, like I am an iconoclast. You write in the book, it takes a confident victor to tell stories of their own cruelty or incompetence. Did you find any examples of that along the way as you were putting this book together? You can point to historical examples. When Prime Minister Chrétien said, no, 101st Canadian Airborne is no longer going to exist as a regiment. Remember, there was the Somali incident, mm -hmm. and there was a death of a Somali kid by 101st Airborne, a very nasty, bad incident. And the political layer uh, had the courage to say, no, you don't deserve to exist as a regiment if that's what you do, if that's what you cover up. So that's trying to look at military, the police or the forces that we use with dimensional eyes, not just one eye. They're great. They're honorable. We love them. We really need them. But two eyes saying, are you conducting warfare in a way that we agree with? So, yes, we don't. When we talk about wars, which is why My Lai, the My Lai massacre in Vietnam, um, Cali, I believe was his name. These are kind of turning points in history when the American army itself under public pressure agrees to prosecute the My Lai massacre in Vietnam. This is a massacre of innocent Vietnamese by American troops. So we are admitting that there's injustice and wrong done by our own forces, which are working for good. It takes a very confident society to do that. It takes a very confident police department to prosecute its own cops when they shoot and they don't have to. And you can sort of test the confidence of an organization for how, how demanding they will be publicly on the members of their organization. So to tell the story of the monster in your uniform is very hard and you have to be very confident to be able to do that. But we do have them. You also write about the wisdom of taking in stories of war told by the losers. Being from a country on the winning side of world wars, what struck you about how veterans and governments from the other side undertake commemoration? A lot of stories, a lot of countries who lose don't commemorate. When I was in Serbia, I described going to uh, the Belgrade cemeteries, and it was the first time that Serbia was creating remembrance ceremony. You can you can imagine that remembrance ceremonies in Serbia would be very complex, because not only 1914, but not only the Balkan War, not only Yugoslavia, uh, the Balkans Wars, of which some Serb commanders were taken to the international court. So remembering wars in Serbia if you are going to remember everything, is a very complex matter. 
We have tried to say that remembering wars in Canada, Canada and England, the United States is simpler because we were the good people and we were on the right side. And so we can remember how well we did. But we don't remember how well we didn't do. We purposely leave that out. But the strength of any history or any historian, for me, is if you will look at all the negatives as well as all the positives. And you put them all together. Terence McKenna did a wonderful documentary on Bomber Command. I think it was in the 1980s. It was on CBC and got into a lot of trouble for it. Mm-hmm. And he was saying World War II. Bomber Command, I mean, these are extraordinary young men who flew these. I mean, my great uncle, was my, yeah, my uncle, my uncle Pip was one of the bomber pilots. He survived. But the survival rate for young uh, British, Australian, Canadian officers in these bombers was not long. And they were flying these long missions and they were bombing targets in Germany. Um, and it was a very important part of the war. Terence McKenna's documentary pointed out that far too many of the targets on which they dropped their explosives weren't military, were civilian. And he said, well, some of them were because they were missing, some of them, and some of them were deliberate. And when we firebombed uh, Tokyo and when we firebombed uh, Dresden, this is deliberate uh, terror on civilians. And his his documentary said many of our brave young men who flew these Lancasters over and bombed Germany were in fact committing all at war crimes or killing civilians. Huge pushback. You cannot insult veterans this way. And indeed, you can't. But does that mean you don't tell the truth? Does that mean the Canadians don't hear that our brave Canadian pilots and navigators and flight engineers were in fact burning civilians alive? But they were. So where do you put that knowledge? In a very necessary war, because it's Nazi Germany, which is a toxic, toxic regime. It gets complex, but unless you look at the complexities, you are in a bit of a Disneyland history. In the book, I try to say, you know, by going to Serbia, going to Belgrade and Budapest and, you know, France and hearing all the other stories about how other cultures remember war, it's enriched the way I think of, not enriched the way I think about wars, but actually it's made the memory of war and how you tell stories about war far more um, resonant. As a bookseller, By the Ghost Light is a tricky book to classify. It's personal and family history. It talks about the social history of war as well as the politics of remembrance. The book also gradually conveys a poetic idea about the fleeting nature of acting on the stage, the memory of shared experience and ritual, and it all seems to be in conversation with history and with militarism. So how do you talk about By the Ghost Light? How do you classify it? You got me, Michael. (laughs) I call it a tapestry. I call it a tapestry. I call it a landscape. Um, It's a landscape through which I journey or a tapestry through which I journey sort of thread by thread, color by color. I hope all the threads of the tapestry actually start to create a picture of the stories that we tell about war. I don't want to write a war book 
No, this is a book about war. This is a book about, I've got, I've got some lessons to tell you about war. No, 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 I don't want to do that. I wanted people to think about war and in terms of their family, what they see in the streets about them, what they see on their television and film screens, what they hear from other cultures. I want people to be aware of the young Chinese guys who were killed in World War One that nobody ever, ever remembers because that broadens the viewfinder through which you look. I want people to go back into their own families and say, what was that story my grandfather told me? What was that story my great-grandmother told me? I want the story keepers in, cult, in every family to say, I should have written that down. Well, go and write it down, write it down now, because that's important for you, your family to be telling that story. Uh, my next-door neighbor started telling me a story about how, you know, the family that came from Lithuania, and then they were just before World War II, some of them came here, and others worked in in the German army, and it was an incredible story of survival. So while the book may seem dour, and at times, like, this is a heavy landscape to travel through, it is the extraordinary power of, of enlightened individuals that I meet on the way and I talk about, um, who write poets. I mean, the war poets were extraordinary, brave and talented people. So the, the extraordinary reaction of human nature to extraordinary human degradation. I mean, the very fact that Oppenheimer said that to President Truman, you know, Mr. President, I feel I have blood in my hands, referring to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's a step forward for human dignity. But the man who created the destruction years later could say, no, no. I, the creator, I who helped bring apart the end of World War II, I've got blood in my hands. That's how humanity leads forward. I mean, it did, all these wars did lead to the Declaration of Human Rights at the UN, which was a huge step forward for humanity. So you can think about it anyway, but I, I prefer people to approach the book saying, what about my family? What about my family stories? Robert, Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate it. And we didn't talk about music. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Next time. I've been speaking with R.H. Thompson, author of By the Ghost Light, Wars, Memory, and Families. Find it at Kobo and Conversations home on the web, kobo.com slash conversation. Check out the show notes for a link. Subscribe in your podcast player to catch every episode. And if you enjoyed this one, tell somebody who you trust with your stories. Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamblin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>